I looked like every other bitch, let me tell you. Hello, my little bean sprouts. Welcome back to another episode of Non-Toxic Granola. If you've listened to my last episode, The Kinky Tickle Trunk, you would know that we have since renamed and rebranded in the name of uh, the pursuit of being as least problematic as possible. Although, you know, it's a work in progress and uh, we're all we're all out here learning and doing our best, right? That's exactly why I started this podcast. Because I want all of you to join me on my journey and have your own little journeys of discovery, personal growth, you know? We're all just out here trying to be better people, right? We gotta be better so that we can make the society better and hopefully make this world a little bit better and have fun while we're doing it, am I right? So today, the episode consists of some news articles and some rants, as you know I do. We talk about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, microplastics, evolving ecosystems within these synthetic environments. We talk about plastics and the bacteria that have evolved to devour them. The plastics are being eaten by bacteria. Now that is something to celebrate in my opinion. And finally, you're going to hear me talk about some of the things contributing to the microplastic accumulation. One of which, you know, stemming from a really common Pacific Northwest stereotype outfit. Let me just say, the Patagucci is perhaps at fault. Stay tuned, you'll learn a thing or two about the environment, about the ocean, about plastics, and about how harmful the Patagucci Blundstone combo could be, both for your fashion sense and the environment. All right, let's go. Plastics in the ocean. Okay. So to begin, we're going to start out with an article posted to BBC News written by Victoria Gill. And this was posted December 4th, 2021, titled Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch is Immense Plastic Habitat. Scientists have discovered marine animals living on plastic debris in an area of open ocean dubbed the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Plants, animals like anemones, marine bugs, mollusks, crabs, and more have all been found on 90% of the debris but scientists are concerned that it may help transport invasive species. Yikes! (laughs) So, to be specific, for those of you who have not heard about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, essentially, within the ocean, there are these gyres, okay? Areas where circulating currents cause, in this case, floating debris to accumulate in the middle of the gyre, uh, causing this patch of garbage. There are at least five plastic-infested gyres in the world, but this one is thought to hold the most floating plastic, estimated to be about 79,000 tons, or more than 610,000 square miles. Okay, that's 1.6 million square kilometers. Okay? Holy fuck. Now, 
to elaborate a little bit more about, first of all, what a gyre is, and second of all, a little bit more of a visual to help everyone conceptualize just how large of an area this is. Because, you know, I mean, yeah, you could say a big number and it's a big number and you're like, oh shit, that's a big number. <laughs> but to be able to picture it, like to actually be able to picture, like, let's say an area that you're familiar with and know how fucking big it is on a map and then imagine it just all being plastic pollution and debris. It's shocking. But before I go there, I'm just going to continue a little bit more from this article because they quote researcher Dr. Lindsay Haram. Lindsay, shout out. It's a great fucking name. She says, plastics are more permanent than many of the natural debris previously seen in open ocean creating more permanent habitat in this area. I mean, think of debris like, uh, let's say, driftwood, right? Or logs that were uh, left behind from, from big shipments of trees that had been cut down in the logging industry or something, right? Like those would consider, we, they'd be considered debris, but technically biodegradable debris because it's wood, right? Uh, so, so now we're thinking not only of this as just a patch of, of pollution and plastics, we are now, I say we, I guess I mean scientists, <laughs> uh, and media are considering this now its own habitat, okay? I'm gonna let that sink in for a little bit. So, like I said, I was gonna elaborate on what a gyre is first and foremost. So... There's five gyres in the ocean, big gyres in the ocean, and all of which are supposedly plastic infested. That's unfortunate, but to, to list them, there's the North Atlantic, South Atlantic, North Pacific, South Pacific, and Indian Ocean gyres. These exist, a, if you could visualize a large map of the earth, they exist above and below the equators in ocean regions between continents uh kind of think you could think of it if you wanted to picture a map uh with arrows on it okay i've talked about convection before in the sense of how it exists with air movement in the atmosphere think of it as convection uh causing movement in the ocean on a large scale kind of like the warming and the cooling of the water um obviously close to the equator, much more intense solar radiation, you're actually closer to the sun at the equator. And so the the water by the equator is warming, it's getting hotter, and it is, instead of rising in the atmosphere in elevation, it's rising or dr dropping, depending on which side of the equator you're on, towards the cooler water. So I live in uh, the northern hemisphere, in North America. So, for instance, I'm talking about the uh, North Pacific Gyre, I believe. So you could think of the water warming at the equator and ending up circulating towards the north where it cools down again. Um, 
at latitudes of less sun exposure where the water's cooler, maybe even some sea ice if you want to picture in the Arctic. And then once it cools again, it begins to move southward towards the equator again where it rewarms. And of course there's other factors influencing this movement, which I'll come to. But you remember when you were a kid and you learned how the toilet bowl water flushes the opposite direction in the southern hemisphere. Like I remember we had family friends in Hawaii, uh, not Hawaii, excuse me, in uh, Australia. And I remember that my mom was telling me about how their fucking toilets flush the opposite direction. And I really couldn't wrap my head around it for the longest time. But the gyres flush in opposite directions too. Can you picture it? Like... Let me, let me be clear. I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this. You can fact check me. I'm talking out of my memory right now from like some earth and ocean sciences classes I took in university. But uh, to my knowledge in the Northern hemisphere, the circulation would occur in a clockwise direction. And in the Southern hemisphere, it occurs in a counterclockwise direction. It's pretty cool. But like I said, there's other factors. So winds, tides, uh, differences in salinity levels, uh, like salt concentration levels in the different parts of the ocean also drive these ocean currents. And, you know, like gyre is one form of current. There's other kinds of currents. Like think of like the Gulf Stream type of current. These all, these currents, these gyres, uh, eddies in smaller regions around land in the ocean, maybe not like the full gyre, but like smaller little eddies, movements of water, they all transport oceanic water and they transport heated water and heat very long distances uh, in the ocean. And they help promote large scale mixing of the ocean. They transport nutrients, salts, and in this case, unfortunately, also plastics and pollutants. But for instance, uh, think of southern France, right? Like that's in the North Atlantic. And considering how far north it really is, it should be a lot colder, right? But thanks to a, a stream, a current of warm water coming up. Hold up, my life's a lie. Is it counterclockwise? I need to Google this. But either way, it's the stream of warm water being transported by the ocean that brings warmer breezes, warmer temperatures on land. Um, and actually affects the climate. Okay, no, I was right. North hemisphere, clockwise direction movement. Southern hemisphere, counterclockwise. Um, but it's pretty fucking neat, isn't it? Ultimately, ultimately these uh, ocean movements, these gyres, they help regulate weather, climate, marine ecosystems. Uh, until now, they're actually creating their own uh, ecosystems, which is pretty cool. So I'm going to go back into the episode, <laughs> the article, <laughs> pardon me, the article. Dr. Haran goes on to say, within these large movements of corralled plastics, much of it is microplastics, but there's also larger items like abandoned fishing nets, buoys, <laughs> yeah, boy, <laughs> you know, like fishing buoys, spelt B-U-O-Y-S, not just buoys <laughs> with a Z, okay? 
or even um, vessels floating since 2011 when the Japanese tsunami occurred, she says. Isn't that wild to think about? I mean, first of all, tragic that Japan experienced such an intense tsunami. But isn't it wild to think about all of the debris, all of the seafaring vessels and ships that were anchored in harbors that just got completely taken out to sea? Just disappeared. Well, I guess not disappeared because they are all congregating at the center of these gyres. So there you go. Maybe maybe you could go find your missing boat if you really felt determined. <laughs> you know where to look, is what I'm saying. So Dr. Haram says, We want to get a handle on how plastics may be a transport for invasive species to coasts. And describes these plastics as acting as a raft for organisms and species. Scientists said the discovery highlighted another unintended consequence of plastic pollution, a problem only expected to grow. One previous study estimated that a total of 25,000 million tons of plastic waste would be generated by 2050. That's concerning. But again, that was another big number. So to just put in perspective, because that 25,000 million was tons of plastic waste is for the entire ocean, not just this Pacific garbage patch. So as I said, I'm going to give more of a visual, an example that you could perhaps relate to the size of this Pacific garbage patch. So to reiterate, only 79,000 tons are in this Pacific garbage patch, that is 610,000 square miles or 1.6 million square kilometers for those of us in metric units. Okay, so that's like a fraction of the tons of plastic that is estimated to be accumulating in the ocean by 2050, right? Now for context, those of you familiar with the United States of America, the state of Alaska is 663,267 square miles, or mm, to make it a decimal point, because I'm just tired of saying huge numbers already, the state of Alaska is roughly 1.7 million square kilometers. So just slightly bigger than the Pacific Garbage Patch, right? The entire state of Alaska, which is a very large surface area, right? Have you seen the map? That's a pretty solid chunk of land. Uh, if you're in Canada, the province of Quebec is about 1.54 million square kilometers. Ontario, the province of Ontario, is pretty close to 1.1 million square kilometers. So again, Quebec is pretty close. The province of Quebec is pretty close to the size of this patch of floating plastic in the ocean, which is uh, pretty wild because let's be honest, let's be honest. In the grand scheme of things, Northern provinces, territories, and Alaska, a state, in North America are very, very large, vastly, <laughs> like, 
they're vastly plains. You know what I mean? They're, they're vastly spaces. Especially considering how small the population is compared to, say, in, like, an, another country where their population density is really fucking high. Like, we got a lot of space going on out here. Now picture that all that fucking space as a patch of just sheer pollutants and plastics in the ocean just floating around, creating their own habitat. Can you believe this, people? You know, I've talked about anthropogenic climate change, but let's talk about the fact that there are human-caused, human-created plastic ecosystems evolving. <laughs> How about that, huh? And, like they said, um, you know, this is unfortunately perhaps a, a bad unintended consequence in the sense of invasive species having a method of transportation. When they say rafting too, you know, think, you know, you ever sit on a raft? Like you just hop on a floaty. Anyone ever been so irresponsible? as to get a little day drunk and hop on a little floaty on the ocean or on a lake or on the river and then fall asleep and they're just fucking floating and they're way out to shore. I mean, out <laughs> out away from shore. I've seen way too many videos of dumbass people <laughs> who fall asleep on a floaty on like the lake or the ocean and wake up just so far away from where they came from. Like so far out from shore. Species are doing that and just being like catching a ride and maybe just invading other ecosystems and throwing off the balance of the native species. Like people are already doing that. People are already introducing invasive species to the ecosystems they don't belong to already. Like we really don't need this like self-propelled plastics raft <laughs> ecosystem just chunking their way through the ocean, just finding new coastlines to invade. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm picturing, right now, I'm picturing the scene from Finding Nemo when Nemo, like, I literally think it was, like, the Gulf Stream. It was some kind of stream of this jet of just warm water that was just being a, cur a current, an underwater current, like a river, like a highway. In this case, it was, like, their own little super highway, right? And Nemo finds all the fucking stoner surfer bro turtles and catches a ride with them, you know, he's like, hot fin, noggin, yeah, bro, like, you know, that, those guys, I'm picturing that, except, like, little species being, like, on, on my way, it's, like, on my way to fuck your bitch, but, like, on my way to invade your ecosystem, <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know what, I can't, I can't just be negative, because, you know, we're trying to cultivate... Maybe even just like a little bit of positivity here today. Practice factfulness, if you've ever read that article. It's kind of the idea that, yeah, there's a lot of really fucked up things going on in this world. And there's a lot of things that we could cling to and be really scared about or have eco-anxiety about or be panicked for the future. But there's also a lot of really cool and really great things that are happening in this world. You know, like, all in all, in the grand scheme of things, living conditions are pretty fucking great in the present moment compared to historically. And practicing factfulness would be rationalizing that, yeah, although there's really scary things going on and yeah, there's a lot of things we still should improve upon or mitigate, like environmental degradation and climate change and pollution. And, uh, I'm getting away from myself. We should be 
uh, equally giving attention to the positive things as we are clinging to the negative things. Because in the media especially, you know, like a negative, scary, fearful thing is way more of clickbait than something that's like just positive and just like, oh, that was, that was a happy news story, right? Like people love a sketchy fucking title to the article, right? That, that gets clicks. When bad things happen, the it spreads through new, the news and the media like wildfire. But, you know, you don't really hear as much coverage about every single little positive and exciting thing that happens. So to counteract just the, sh- first of all, the sheer size <laughs> of, of the amount of plastics accumulating in the ocean and pollution and, and the fact that these little species are hitching rides on the pollution to potentially act as invasive species to other sensitive ecosystems. I'm going to counteract that by reading a second article. And this is posted in The Guardian. It was posted actually on August 11th of 2021, written by Russell Thomas. This is titled, Welcome to the Plastosphere, the Synthetic Ecosystem <laughs> Ecosystem Evolving at Sea. Now, I know, I know the title still sounds bad, okay? I know... Listen, sorry, I just had to, I just had to stay hydrated. Hold on. Have you drank water today? My motherly instincts are coming out. Please drink water today. Okay. (laughs) While we still have access to fresh water, please drink it. You know, (laughs) I'm just, I'm sorry. I was slipping into the negatives again. Okay. This title, The Plastosphere, the synthetic ecosystem evolving at sea. Sounds negative, yeah, but it is about to introduce a positive concept. Uh, and I first found out about this, I believe it was the summer of 2018, maybe. I think I first read an article about this and I got stoked. Okay, when I tell you I got stoked, okay? Like my brother and I were geeking the fuck out over this. Like, This is exciting fucking news, okay? Mother Nature has her way, is what I'm saying, okay? But before I get... I'm building it up. I'm building it up. See, I'm trying to get you excited here, my loves. But before we get to that, I'm gonna... I'm gonna summarize a bit more about what they say because they also introduced the term plastosphere, right? So we talked about how this habitat is kind of evolving. They're specifying the name as a plastosphere, a synthetic ecosystem. Ocean plastic has created a unique home for specialized organisms from animals that travel on it to bacteria that eat it. (laughs) You know, I love it when they tell me they eat it. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you catching my drift? Like, if you don't eat, if you're not going to eat it, I don't want it. Do you know, do you know are you getting the innuendo here? Are we following? Are you, you granola hose are we following the listen. Eat it or bust, okay? But not that way because if you don't eat it, you don't get to bust. You get what I'm saying? Okay. Bacteria that eat it. Baby, hear me out. They have discovered bacteria that quote-unquote eat plastics. Now, the proper term would likely be degrade. 
degrade plastics, but eating it is a way better way to title it because you know we love the sexual innuendos. We, we cling to the sexual innuendos, my loves. My little hoes. To be specific, there's one type of plastic in particular that this article is talking about in relation to the bacteria that is found in plastic water bottles. This is abbreviated as PET, but it's polyethylene terephthalate for anyone who fucking knows whatever that means. Any chemists out there. But we're gonna go with PET or PET, okay? Why? I'm sorry, why are these all sexual to me? I need to get my head out of the gutter, okay? So a study in July of 2021 published in the microbiome titled A Multi-OMIC Characterization of Biodegradation and Microbial Community Succession Within the Pet Plastosphere. They found two bacteria capable of breaking down these PET plastics. The headlines often paraphrase this, referring to the breakdown as eating plastics, but you know, <laughs> I can't stop. I'm holding my tongue from making more fucking jokes. Okay, I'm not even gonna go and try and fucking pronounce these two bacteria, okay? I'm gonna, they're abbreviated to, again, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna call them BH. ET1 and BHET2, but fuck, fuck it. One of the, the first one is like Theoclara SP, the BHET1, and the other one is Bacillus SP, BHET2. Pardon moi if I mispronounce that. Your bitch is not a chemical engineer. I thought about it for a minute and then I was like, I hate chemistry and I hate calculus because them bitches get hardest fucking university. I liked them in high school, not down in university. They don't call it killer chem for nothing. Now, these bacteria were isolated in a lab, but they were discovered in the ocean, okay? You hear me? Gotta flip the page here, flip the page, okay. Pardon the background noise. I've gotten feedback on that before, but I don't know what to tell you. I live in the Stone Age. I'm not reading notes off my laptop. I'm reading this out of a motherfucking journal that I took paper notes in. Call me a 40-year-old man. It is what it is. <laughs> this, this article goes on to say, These bacteria are the latest example of new organisms that appear to be growing in a unique environment, being vast amounts of plastic at sea. The plastosphere is a region similar to the way the atmosphere refers to a region of air surrounding Earth's surface, but this plastosphere is also an ecosystem like a coral reef, a plasticized marine environment. We've heard it referred to already as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and it's the, well, uh, the most well-known concentration of seaborne plastic waste and is spread, they, so they give another example of a region to compare it to. It's spread over a region or area roughly twice the size of France. Now, Linda Amaral Zettler, a marine microbiologist from the Netherlands, was the first to coin the term plastosphere. 
She says the plastosphere has been around for as long as plastics have existed, but what's new is our understanding of just how complex these ecosystems, these, uh, this world of plastic ecosystems can be. Within them, there are photosynthesizers like planktons, there are predator and prey, there are symbionts and parasites, allowing for a full gamut of interactions possible as in other ecosystems, says Amaral Zettler. In 2016, a Japanese scientist, uh, pardon me again if I mispronounce this, but a bitch does not speak fucking Japanese. Uh, Idionella Sakayanisis. Oh, fuck me up, man. I'm so disrespectful. Idionella Sakayensis. It's my best shot, sorry. Anyways, this scientist discovered a species of bacteria at a rubbish dump that had evolved an enzyme that enabled it to eat plastics. Now, let's just let's just say uh, plastics are relatively new on the evolutionary timescale, but uh, the materials that plastics are made of, or I should say the chemicals, are mainly constituents of oil, and they are not new. So let's remember that these evolutionary traits of, of like, let's say, evolving an enzyme that eats plastic or whatever other mechanisms are used now to, um, for these bacteria to biodegrade microplastics, essentially, like, these are not sudden and new mutation phenomena, right? The bacteria have had millions of years to develop mechanisms to degrade the chemicals that plastics are made of. So let's just keep that in mind. Now, Wright was an author of the Microbiome published article, and he says that bacteria and microbes on plastics are going to be a key place to look in the fight against plastics. So that's kind of positive, right? Now, just before we wrap up, I would like to say that Amaral Zettler agrees, but she cautions against overstating the possibility because lab studies do not take into account oceanic conditions such as differing temperatures, presences of other organisms, etc. But just knowing this is theoretically possible is a really, really great step in the right direction, she says. For better or for worse, like plastics, Amaral Zettler says, the plastosphere is here to stay. How does that make everyone feel? I mean, when I think about that projection of how many tons of plastic waste are expected to be accumulating in the ocean by the year of 2050, I, I get a little bit, a little bit anxious, poo, a little bit stressed. But as an antidote for that anxiety, I really like to think that, you know, Earth systems and ecosystems have a level of homeostasis similar to what we as uh, human organisms have within our bodies that try to maintain a stable kind of environment, right? Mechanisms to bring back the state of the ecosystem or the environment or the organism back to a baseline homeostasis where everything is at optimal functioning, right? And I kind of I don't know, I like to think of the fact that there are bacteria out there doing the work, breaking down plastics, <laughs> eating it real good. 
eating it like motherfucking lunch, okay? It makes me a little bit, feel a little, a little bit better, you know? And to any, um, any boys and men out there, I would just like to say, if bacteria are out here eating it like it's breakfast, lunch, and motherfucking dinner, you too, sir, should be fucking eating it like there's no tomorrow. You hear what I'm saying? I don't want to hear no, mm, I don't eat it like that, okay? No, that's not an option anymore. It's 2021. Okay, if bacteria are out here doing the dirty work for plastics, you can do it for biofems, okay? Thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Round of applause. I know. Thank you. I'm just, I'm just, I'm out here doing the work. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for everyone. I'm helping every, help me help you. You know what I'm saying? All right, let me... <laughs> Let me reel myself back in for a moment. Oof. All this talk about microplastics and the ocean and microbiomes and everything like that, they really have me reminiscing. The first season that I worked as a wilderness guide um, was the summer and fall of 2017, I believe. I think, yeah, that's right. Um... If not even 2016, dude. Because I worked... No, it was 2017. It was for sure 2017. And in this first season that I worked as a guide, we had a lovely young woman who came and did her practicum with us. And she was from Belgium. Uh, <laughs> her name was even... You know what? This was the sweetest part. Her name was Marine. And she had just completed her master's degree in micro, uh, excuse me, in marine biology. So she studied marine biology in Belgium and came all the way out to the coast of British Columbia to do a practicum. Specifically, mostly she was on like the boat doing whale watching, uh, not really doing anything else because technically wasn't a guide, but was more like a naturalist interpreter for us. And every single night at the lodge, the staff, we would take turns. We had, were on our scheduled rotation. And after dinner, we would give a formal presentation to the guests that were there for the night. And we all had a different topic of interest that we would do a speech and a, present, a PowerPoint presentation on. You know, maybe some props were involved. Something that was really engaging and educational and informative, informative for the guests. Uh, and Marin did hers on her thesis, her master's thesis. Which was, can you guess, about microplastics. Um, and I learned so much about microplastics at the time. Sadly, Mardine was only with us for the one season, uh, for, for the 2017 season, and then went back to Belgium. But I remember so vividly the presentation of her master's thesis, because what she'd studied was the accumulation and presence of microplastics across different species of fish and then additionally the sources or the most prevalent sources of microplastics that were then found in these species of fish because as i'm sure you've been able to infer for yourselves 
when my, when there's so much plastic pollution in the ocean, whether it's larger debris or even already pre-existing smaller microplastics being released, it's all still being broken down more and more. Think about how sand that you find on a beach, like white sand beaches, all of that was like that was rock, like big rock at one point that was just pummeled and broken down and just worn away at until it was made into smaller rocks and then pebbles and then large grain sand and then fine fine grain sand right the same things are happening to the plastics being broken down smaller and smaller and smaller but there's also a lot of sources that humans are producing and polluting with that are actually already microplastics think about think about the microplastic beads in face washes, in toothpastes. Think about all of our synthetic clothing, especially like let's say as much as I love a good fleece sweater, like that shit is made from petroleum, <laughs> right? The same base product or chemical that's used in the production of plastics. So a lot of our clothes are actually made of tiny microfibers of plastic material. And while she was talking on and on about the different types of species of fish that she surveyed and took samples from, and the different species that had the highest uh, concentrations of accumulative <laughs> microplastics, if I could say, she was also talking about, you know, the process, the biological processes by which these species came to even have microplastics. Because if if they're within the ecosystem, species are inevitably going to be ingesting them. And then that that effect of biomagnification happens. Is that the right term? Biomagnification? Let me just double check. But essentially, as you travel up um, the food chain or the, the web of life, the species from smallest to biggest... Um, they're not only ingesting any potential microplastics in their environment, but they're also ingesting the microplastics that have been ingested by the smaller species that they're ingesting. So think of it this way, right? Us humans, through our industrial production and consumption, we are emitting a lot of chemicals, a lot of fossil fuel emissions, a lot of plastics, okay, into the environment. Uh, ultimately going into both the atmosphere and the ocean and all of our freshwater hydrological cycles, you know. So now picture we have really small photosynthesizing phytoplanktons, okay? Now they're absorbing these chemicals, these microplastics, anything that's in their environment. Now you have a the slightly larger zooplanktons and the phytoplanktons who are consuming smaller algaes and planktons, okay? Now you go up again, you have small species of fish or other kinds of marine species like herring who are eating now the zooplankton and phytoplankton. Go up again, you have salmon, bigger bigger fish like tuna. Probably you've heard about how a lot of tuna has quite the bioaccumulation of lead and is probably wise to eat in small quantities because of that. 
right? Then you have, let's go up again, now you have your resident orcas who are salmon-eating orca, large mammal, who are consuming these bigger species of fish. And now these largest mammals, us included, by the way, when I gave that example of the tuna and the bioaccumulation of lead, humans are the large mammal then consuming the the salmon or the the tuna right now not only do you have a little bit of microplastics that had been put into the ocean right we're not just absorbing what microplastics are around us in the ocean we are ingesting every single molecule that is like let's say fat soluble right not not necessarily anything that's water soluble vitamin c is water soluble right you could eat a fuck ton of vitamin c and anything that your body doesn't use you're probably gonna piss out but things like lead microplastics these things are not necessarily just going straight through our body right they're stored in our fat cells in our bodies maybe other kinds of things i don't know if you're if you're you're a specialist in this area like if i'm saying something wrong call me out but you're having all of that accumulate up every single species in that particular food chain, right? That that biomagnification, the bioaccumulation, these are all effects. Like mercury is another thing. I, maybe it was mercury that was a problem in tuna, right? Yeah, maybe mercury was more of a problem than lead. But they're all, they're all prevalent. And so my point is... This girl was was looking at them, right? And seeing what different species ended up accumulating the most in their bodies. And then she would go even deeper and see exactly, okay, like these particular microplastics that we're finding, where do they originate from? And I have to say, like I've already given you the answer here to the to what I'm about to talk about, but it personally blew my mind at the time in the summer of 2017 if you had asked me what is the biggest source of plastic that i i being marine what's the biggest source of plastic discovered within these species of fish i probably would not have guessed this but the answer was microfibers microplastics coming from our clothing because when get this when we wash our clothes in the washing machine, right? They're getting pummeled around. A lot of microfibers and microplastics are coming off of our clothing. And let's be honest, a lot of our gray water, um, a lot of a lot of the water from like our sinks and our washing machines, our dishwashers, these kinds of things, they are not being treated. In the same way, obviously, as let's say the waste from toilets. Those go through more rigorous water treatment plants before being emitted into the ocean, before, you know, going back out into the ocean. Um, as my dad would say, though, <laughs> dilution is not the solution to pollution. People think that the ocean is like this vast space that, you know, it's like, oh, okay, even though we treated it, we can like dump this sewage back into the ocean and the currents will pick it up and spread it around the ocean and it won't be accumulated. It's not stagnant bodies of water. It's not going to be that much of a problem. My dad has a master's degree in environmental engineering. And so he actually did a lot of designing water treatment plants and stuff like that. And he has, 
he really hates like where i live in victoria bc we are we dump like we straight up dump raw sewage dude they're only now building a a water treatment plant based on popular demand essentially but like for a really long time victoria was dumping straight up just raw sewage into the ocean in multiple different spots because claiming that because we're on the southern tip of vancouver island and there's such strong currents and different um oceanic processes <laughs> sweeping around the southern tip of Vancouver Island that, that it would be okay because it would immediately get transported out to sea. But listen, dilution is not the solution to pollution because when it comes to our gray water, let's say the water coming from the washing machines, n- ain't nothing filtering out microplastics from that water before it gets dumped into the ocean, okay? But here's the thing. I, again, I have to give you a positive now. There are, if you, if you listening are an individual who is the type that has both the resources, the time and the energy, mental cognitive energy to be taking steps to lighten your environmental footprint, then I'm going to make a suggestion for you. Uh, I also, however, really empathize that not everyone, A, has the financial resources or uh, the, capa- the a mental or emotional capacity to be doing everything and anything that they possibly can to lighten their environmental load. We can agree that I believe that the responsibility should fall more heavily on corporate <laughs> and uh, government systems rather than the individual, but I also believe that we still as individuals carry the responsibility to make personal choices and we can't just offload the blame entirely but if if you are listening and you are the type of person who wants to be finding a solution in your own daily life to help make little improvements there are supposedly bags like like essentially bags that you would put your clothes in before you put them in the washing machine and these bags are specifically designed to capture microplastics and any kind of chemical pollutants that would be coming off of clothes while being washed. And rather than them just getting directly put back into the ocean in the water, uh, they would be trapped in the bag. The, fi- the, the fibers and the, the material that the bag is made of. I can't give you a quote directly of where to source this particular bag. But, you know, Google and the internet is a wonderful, wonderful resource. So, you know, nothing a little quick Google search can't can't solve, you know, bud. Just hit a quick Google search, bud. And so, you know, I thought that was kind of cool, though. Because here's the thing. So many of us, like, I never before, before Marin had talked about this, I had never even considered the fact my clothing... Me just wash, doing the simple act of washing my clothing, never mind the massive amounts of fresh water use that we, uh, in particularly North America, use for washing things, um, I would never have considered the possibility of microplastics being dumped into the ocean because I washed my fucking synthetic, my Patagucci fucking fleece sweater, okay? I don't know where you live, but I'll tell you one thing, and that is on Vancouver Island. When I say Patagucci, I really meant Patagonia, but we call it Patagucci because that shit's expensive, okay? Do you know how many people rock synthetic? They're like, chin- they call them like cinchilla. 
like the material they call it cinchilla because it's not like chinchilla like animal fur <laughs> it's synthetic fleece sweaters and they're sick as fuck man they have pretty cool patterns on them they're that hot shit to wear if you're kicking it on the west coast of canada if you don't have blundstones and a patagonia fleece sweater what are you doing <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm just kidding be original please like honestly like we all wear this too much i only ever used to wear blundstones and fleece sweaters and probably like comfy pants when i was in first first year and second year of university i looked like every other bitch let me tell you i was like yeah this is comfy i'm depressed i gotta get to class throw on my patagucci fleece some comfy pants and my blundstones you know how easy those shits are to slip on quick easy go and then i came out of my depressive episode and was like i need to not look like every other bitch and i need to branch out a little bit and not just be the pnw stereotype you know i'm all about breaking stereotypes this one guy that i knew in university i would describe as quite fashion forward and trendy dressed really really well and like is from the mainland like is from like vancouver area or like specifically squamish for those of you who are familiar with british columbia but <laughs> but i like was talking to him once and i was like i can't even remember how we got on this topic i was like trying to decide what shoes i should get or like some shit like that and he was like for fuck's sakes whatever you do just do not wear blundstones in my presence. He <laughs> and and like was actually offended. He scoffed, rolled his eyes at the memory of how many blundstones he had been exposed to in his years of going to university in Victoria. He was like, "Please, for the love of God, if I have to see one more pair of blundstones, I'm fucking leaving. I'm I'm dropping out of university and I'm moving the fuck back." to vancouver but you know i mean faulty logic because <laughs> soccer everyone in vancouver wears blundstones too you can't run away you can't get away from them they'll follow you but he was he was like i cannot believe i have been subjected to witnessing so many fucking blundstones in my my days in victoria he was like, everywhere I look, like I can't get away from them. Everywhere I look, they just violate my eyes with their basic ugly footwear. He was like, Why, what did I ever do to deserve this? <laughs> He's like, can nobody ever just fucking wear nice shoes for once in their goddamn life? He's like, it's not even raining outside half the time and people are still like, blundstones or die. You know, like this guy would always wear like Nike blazers or some nice street style like sneakers right <laughs> he's so mad like he was like pissed when he was ranting when he was ranting about how fucking sick and tired he was of seeing this pnw stereotypical fucking outfit and and selection of footwear this man was in his feelings he was not okay emotionally like I don't want to use the word trauma, but this man was traumatized. <laughs> he was having PTSD flashbacks while speaking about them. 
I almost had to like snap him out of it and be like, maybe we should change the subject. Like this clearly isn't good for your mental health to revisit. <laughs> I was like, maybe, maybe we shouldn't revisit this topic. Like let, let, let's just change the subject because you know, you know what? I can do that. I was like, I can do that. I cannot wear blundstones in your presence. I can do that for you, friend, friend of mine. If this is what it takes to help you recover from the PTSD you've incurred participating on the campus of the University of Victoria, I'll do what I have to do for my people. You know what I'm saying? Like for my for my fellow, my fellow fashion forward folk. Ooh, that had a good ring to it. I'll do it. I considered burning my blundstones in that moment, but I couldn't do it. They're just really functional. I don't know what to tell you. They're really functional. You know what I'm saying? When you're out, when it when it's a cold, rainy day on the coast in the PNW, you don't want to get your expensive kicks dirty. Like you're not about to wear your fresh AF ones out into the puddles. You're not going puddle jumping in some Jordan ones. You hear me? Like you. You don't risk it for the biscuit with those expensive shoes. You gotta have a pair of backups that are your puddle jumpers. You know? Because I'm an adult, but I've been known to still need to splash in a puddle or two. I advocate for playing. I feel like it brings out the good inner child to embrace childhood play. You know? Like if I see snow, I'm I'm making a snow angel. Count on it. Not in my AF ones, I'll tell you that. You best believe your bitch either has ski boots or blundstones on if I'm in the snow. I'm not walking in the rain in shoes I care about. I've had a fucking pair of like blundstones and a Patagonia sweater for the past six to seven years. I've had the same ones. And I don't know what to tell you, like the quality is pretty up there. And if you're going out in the rain and the cold, if you don't know this already, I had to teach (laughs) my partner now, I had to teach him the concept of layering. I was like, you can't, you can't just wear a Gore-Tex jacket over a t-shirt and think you're good. You're going to get hypothermia. (laughs) You can't, yeah, yeah, it blocks the wind chill in the rain. But you're still going to be cold as fuck. This coastal cold hits you in your soul. Okay? It's not like that interior really dry cold where it's minus 30 fucking degrees Celsius. But sunny out and you know, you can, you're still, you're like, yeah, my nose hairs might freeze. But we're good. No. It could be like minus one degree and it's humid as fuck out here. And your soul withers. I was like, you have to layer. And these Patagonia sweaters are ideal for layering. Picture this. It's a rainy day. You have to walk somewhere. Are you going to wear your nice ass jacket with some nice ass shoes and be cold as fuck and get your expensive ass shoes fucking muddy and dirty and be sad about it and go home and cry about it because you creased your fucking Nikes or something? Or are you going to pop on a fuzzy fuzzy insulating layer of fleece 
so it's rubbing against your arms. You know, you have a you have a t-shirt on and your arms just get caressed by this plastic, this soft, soft, sweet plastic cinchilla with your layer of Gore-Tex jacket over top. Feeling rich as fuck because Blundstones, Arcteryx, and Patagonia are all also expensive. You feel fresh to death in this environment, I'll tell you that. You fit right the fuck in. You know how silly you would look walking around in the rain with just some street style fucking shirt on and expensive shoes that cost more than my grocery bill for the whole month and I eat a lot of food? You're picking up what I'm putting down? You'd look like a clown. You'd be the outcast. At a point, at a point, social pressure kicks in. If you are in a place where you look around and everyone in the rain is wearing the same shit, you're probably going to be unconsciously, the social cue is, oh, fuck, I gotta, oh, so that's how you exist in this climate. Adapt or die. Adapt or die. Unfortunately, as we've discovered, there's flaws to this because um, because this outfit has scarred a certain individual that I know. And he can't be the only one. He can't be the only one who from the bottom of his heart absolutely detests having blundstones in his face. He does not. This man does never, never wants to see a blundstone again in his life. And as we just discovered, apparently our expensive fucking Patagucci fleeces are contributing to the environmental crisis with fucking microplastics. So, you know, maybe it's, um, it's like a fashion faux pas and an environmental faux pas. Not to mention Blundstones are made of leather. Where are my vegans at? Are you mad or are you still wearing them? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a full force vegan. I'm a vegetarian, flexitarian. But I'm saying, I would just like to point, I'm taking this opportunity to point out the hypocrisy. <laughs> that is this PNW stereotype. Okay, hear me out. Picture this. I'm really painting you guys a picture right now, okay? Because I haven't started my video podcast yet and I have to keep saying picture this so that you can picture this. Is your imagination going? It better be. When I paint this picture, you better also believe that everyone in Victoria wearing this outfit claims to be very environmentally conscious, if not even environmental activist. And now I sit here and wonder, how could a company like Patagonia that advocates so strongly for the environment and everyone who wears it advocates so strongly for the environment, but yet... We don't stop and think, hey, we're still participating in consumerism and we're still wearing things literally made of petroleum plastics. We're wearing like animal pelts and plastic and call it fashion. Where? Fashion? Where? Definitely not environmentally conscious. I'll tell you that. We have a lot to reflect on today. We have a lot to reflect on. I mean, shout out to the bacteria eating it better than most fucking boys. 
because they might they might be the only thing to compensate for everyone in the Pacific Northwest's fucking obsession with plastic based fleeces. But but we gotta do better, <laughs> okay? Okay. Bye.